Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. UK's only Things Union show, produced for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation in this week's episode. Christina Kolkler of the Why Not Lab on what unions can and must do to counter the rise of super surveillance in the age of COVID. Hello, hello, hello. You're very welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper. And in this episode, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the world of digital information. Very necessary as more and more of us are working in in ways that means what we do can be surveyed, monitored remotely and sometimes a bit, uh, a bit anxiously, I suppose. I'll be talking to Christina Colclough, who's the director of the Why Not Agency, a global expert on the way in which unions can interface with data and make it work for us and with us rather than against us. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, a few bits and pieces that's uh, caught my eye as they've moved across my desk in the past few days. The government has set up a trade union advisory group. Trade union advisory group set up by the government. Not that you'd notice, not much in the news about it, eclipsed by more important things, no doubt, but an important step forward, you could say. Now, the group's been established to meet the requirements of the Department for International Trade's external engagement trade policy, clearly important as we move out of the EU. The members announced so far are Francis O'Grady, General Secretary of the TUC, of course, Mike Clancy, General Secretary of Prospect, Mick Cash, General Secretary of the National Union of Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers, RMT, and an interesting uh, addition, David Wrigley, who's Deputy Chair of the British Medical Association, of course, the the Union for Doctors, but not TUC uh, affiliated. Now, coming so far, so good. It's, uh, you know, it's at least half a loaf and that's better than no loaf at all. But as the TUC made clear in their response Well, that's a step in the right direction. Uh, The government has so far excluded unions from the trade advisory groups which are consulted on the sectoral impacts of trade talks. Those groups still consist of 100% business representatives. And therefore, while, as I say, it's welcome... I'm absolutely with the TUC in noting that it's this is not a, a substitute for proper engagement involving unions and employers around the same table at the same time on the same terms. Watch this space, I think. Regular listeners to the podcast will will remember the story that we covered some episodes ago about NUJ members at Bullivant Media. Now, Bullivant Media operates in the Midlands, provides a number of kind of free sheet newspapers uh, across the towns and cities, such as Coventry, Leamington Spa, Rugby, Stratford, and so on. And the members there were very concerned that since COVID, there'd been a real kind of assault on their terms and conditions, redundancies being planned without what the union thought was proper or appropriate consultation, editorial work going out to people who have no editorial experience and so on and so forth. So they took strike action and it was very effective and it was very effective in the sense that they had 100% support for it. 
Also, it was effective because management opened up the door to negotiations. And there's now been a deal, a deal worked out and everyone is reasonably satisfied with what's happened. The NUJ chapel at Bolivant said that they'd secured agreement on working practices and they've been provided with details of the company's editorial structure for the months ahead. They also put on record their thanks to the directors of Bolivant Media for the open and engaging way they approached discussions once meeting began. And as they, as the NUJ said, by listening to each other, we've been able to secure a positive and welcome agreement. There's power in a union. Now, here's another follow-up on a story we covered in an earlier episode of Union Jews. You'll recall that British Airways proposed to fire all their staff, rehire the ones they wanted to keep, but offer them new jobs on the basis of a much lower rate of pay. Well, BA aren't the only employer in this sector who had that idea. London Airport Heathrow, the airport itself, made a similar decision with regards to its employees and the Unite members there have been unable to change them through negotiations so far. So we're in the middle of a, an industrial action ballot and you can absolutely understand why the union reckons that its members could lose up to 25% of their pay, about £8,000 a year. But they've come up with a counter-proposal. Now, how about this? What Unite are saying is, look, our members will give back their £700 each bonus that they received pre-pandemic. But to make sure it's all fair and square, we'd like everyone to give back the bonuses they've received, which includes the £560,000 the chief exec received and includes the £100 or so in shareholder dividends that were paid out. And the union is saying, look, if you put all this into a pot and divide it up fairly and equitably, you would have your restructuring, but actually you would also make sure that people who kept their jobs would have no reduction in their pay. Not surprisingly, the company have refused to pick up this offer, and I don't suppose really anyone expected they would, but full marks to the union for showing very, very graphically that we're not all in this together. Some people have it much worse than others. So good luck to Unite in pursuing that one. I hope you get a change of heart from the the employer. Notions of justice and fairness, easy to say, harder to do. Now to our special guest for this episode, Dr. Christina J. Colclough. She has been described as a fearless optimist who believes that change for good is possible if we put our minds and heart to it. She was the author of the Union Movement's First Principles on Workers' Data Rights and the Ethics of AI. And it's amazing that she's clocked up over 100 speeches in the last three years. Her work especially on the right to disconnect and workers' data rights has been a constant inspiration, inspiration says Sofia Scarcera, who's an advisor to the Argentine Senate. Our own John Wood, digital manager at the TUC, uh, says that Christina is a great ally for the international trade union movement in changing times. She's an essential follow for anyone interested in understanding and dealing with the impact of transformative change on the world of work. And Ruman Chowdhury, global lead responsible for AI in Accenture, says that Christina is a thinker and a doer in the field of responsible AI. She draws from her vast and unique expertise working with frontline employees who would be impacted by AI and automation to provide actionable insights. Finally, Arvid Harin, who's General Secretary of the Finance Services Union in Sweden, 
says that Christina is also a very talented speaker who can inspire many an audience with her eloquence and natural charisma. Well, no pressure then, Christina, but I was delighted to welcome her to the Union Jews podcast. I'm sure you'll be interested and captivated by what she has to say. Christina Colclough, director, creator of the Why Not Lab. Yeah. Welcome to the Union Jews podcast. Really good to see you. And good to see you, Simon. It's been a while. It's been it's a while. Been a while. I, I, thank you so much for giving up the time to come and share your thoughts and views with, with our listeners. Um, workers' rights and digital work and COVID, I mean, it's that's quite a heady cocktail, isn't it? Well, it is, certainly. And I think, in a way, it's waking us up to some of the processes that were happening before COVID. So this new super surveillance of workers the new digital tools that are coming in that are being used by companies. And then came COVID and that has accelerated the use of surveillance tools by companies, but also people's awareness that, you know, what's going on here with all of this data, all of these tools? It, it's potentially quite a dark cloud, isn't it, in terms of an overbearing surveillance regime. But the silver lining is that people are more aware of data, more aware of of the potential to be watched and monitored, and especially in an especially if they're working at home, it's a, a more kind of intrusive feel to it. What do you think unions should be concerned about in this this mix? This mix? What's the union agenda? Well, I think so. Several really, and and some really really important ones. And I and I hope that the current trend we can see that more unions are getting involved. That that will grow very quickly. But there's one thing, yes, people are aware that something is amiss, you know, that I'm being monitored at home and can they see my furniture or my children or my husband walking past me or whatever. But linking that to this whole data extraction, you know, that we that we're doing every time we have our smartphones in our pockets and go for a walk, you know, Google knows where we are. Google also knows where we're not. You know, they know if we ever go to the gym or not. And all of this information is being used, right? So I think unions, to answer your question, unions, number one, have to really start building their members' awareness to this whole thing called data. Or as I usually say, what's all this about data, right? We need to understand what this digital world of ours, convenient as it is, is also turning us into an object, turning us into these numerous profiles. So that's one thing. And then secondly, about this working from home being monitored, but also workers on the front line monitored as they are. Unions should really start questioning, not only in Europe, where we have the general data protection regulation, the world's best data protection regulation, but elsewhere. So what rights do we actually have to challenge this data that's being mined on us, to know about it, to understand these profiles, to block them, to edit them, and so on. So, you know, we have to ask, are the rights that we have in Europe in the GDPR, are they good enough? And my answer to that is no. Some of them are, and unions must start using the rights they have. But there's far more that need to be negotiated in collective agreements and or through political lobbying through law. Yeah, well, the, the, the whole question of enforceability is, is a really difficult one for unions, especially with union density not being as high in most of Europe and certainly not in the UK as it as it was. So 
if we can see what the union agenda is, how do we move from from recognising that agenda to to actually gaining influence and, and sort of putting it into practice? Well, number one, capacity build, capacity build, capacity build. Unions really have to recognise that they internally, so the secretariats, the offices, the staff, they need to raise their awareness, their knowledge of these the systems. What is an algorithm? What is AI? What is data? What are the legal uh, protections we have? How can we use them? That's one thing. Leadership, union leaders, they need to be able to think sort of digital into everything they do. So into their campaigning, their messaging, but also, of course, their political advocacy. So capacity bill number one. Uh, also of the members, so that the shop stewards, the staff reps out there in the companies, that they start asking these necessary questions to management, sort of, hey, um, what algorithmic systems do we have in place here? You know, have you done a data protection impact assessment? If you have, why have you not included us? We want to be involved. Have you checked for bias and discrimination? So we really need to capacity build on all of these things, right? And then we have to safeguard what is actually the core of the union movement, solidarity. Solidarity to all groups of workers. So we don't end up in this digital driven world of the optimal worker, where we're measured, each and every one of us, against the digital norm, you know, the perfect worker. So the solidarity, again, awaken that in a digital context. The, the messaging is all, all, isn't it? Because, yeah, I, I'd forgotten, and I, yeah, it's my, this is really my, my bad. I'd, I'd forgotten about the data protection impact assessments that are part of the GDPR. Even if, even if you've got the most superficial of representation, a works council or, or a staff forum or whatever, if you say to the, the employer, Where's the impact assessment? Yeah. Why haven't you shared it with us? Yeah. What have you done to counter bias and exploitation? I imagine 99 employers out of 100 would go, whoa, <gasps> uh, yeah. and be rocked back on their heels. It would be a tremendous, uh, it, it, it's, it's picking up a tool that's there and li- lying on the ground. Exactly, and, exactly. You know, it's, it's this curious thing that actually the people who get it most of all are the digital natives, the younger people who now constitute the majority of the workforce, but the leadership decisions are taken by people who are one or two generations older than, than that and therefore may not see things in the same way. Well, that's one thing. But also, I mean, let's face it. So an impact assessment, you have to assess for risks, of course. So risk and, and bias and discrimination and, and fairness. You know, fairness is now part of many AI principles, the OECDs being one, right? But, you know, I was honoured to address the OECD ministerial on these matters. And I said, you know, fantastic. We now have a principle of fairness. But when it comes down to practice, down to the level of the company, we have to ask fair for whom? And, you know, yes, your fairness right? is not necessarily my fairness. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why we need the dialogue, right? We need, you know, your compliance officer in the company can do a great job can assess this tool for discrimination, for bias, for fairness. But that person has a particular point of view. We can never discuss fairness and who's it not fair for and can we accept that 
if we can't, what mitigations do we have to do? You know, that single person or that group of white collar workers in an office, legal compliance, you know, cannot do that in its fullness without the workers represented. And um, the, the motivation for for employers to get this right is, is that actually inclusivity, diversity leads to higher productivity, higher quality of output, less distractions from, from avoidable issues. So it is actually there is a strong interest in creating the framework for dialogue on this matter. Well, there should be, right? And I think liability as well. I mean, you can uh, yeah, yeah. very, very quickly risk a situation where a company gets dragged to court for discrimination because their algorithm has only hired people with a particular characteristic, right? So if the system is in breach of anti-discrimination law. I mean, I think what what's happening here, we're in a clash of times, you know, in the UK, for example, the relationship between unions and employers has typically become more and more conflictual. So there's sort of almost an agnostic relationship. And now we have a technology which is begging us to talk, yeah. to discuss. And I really think, you know, let's put dialogue back in vogue. Yeah, because if we don't engage, we don't talk, we don't understand, we don't grow. I understand the, the dynamic that you describe for employers. But what about employees? If employees and, and their organisations, the, the unions, don't understand or rise to this challenge, what do you think the consequences might be? Oh, that's a great question. It's, it's always great, Simon, to ask, what if we don't do this, right? You know, what will be the consequences if we do nothing? Now, several. If you take it on the overall level, Right now, in companies, we have the employers versus the workers. We have that relationship, conflictual, or as Tony Hazard, a great professor, he has called it, we're either boxing or dancing with the employers, right? Either we have a you win, I lose, or we dance away in some kind of a consensus. Now, with these digital tools, many of which are proprietary software or tools that the companies are buying in, there's suddenly a third player on the scene mm. that if management doesn't quite understand how to govern it and the workers don't care and don't want to get involved. And this tool might be designed in the United States. It's used for hiring. Well, you know, who says that the values and norms of an American tool fit into a Lancaster perspective, the culture of Lancaster or London or wherever. So this third player here that nobody really wants to get involved with, nobody understands, yet has vast complications for who gets employed or who gets fired or, or whatever. Then you have this, this whole change of dynamics in the company, which is not good for manager and it's certainly not good for the union strength, right? So that's, you know, number one. Number two, if we don't, if unions don't start to care about all of these things, well, then the digital divide, which is a power divide, is just going to grow between companies and workers. Already now, any type of news you read or truth that is sold to us in the media or in reports are data driven. You know, they're built on a data analysis. And if unions don't start to understand how to get their own data, interpret it, create the data stories, then we're becoming subject to a very unilateral, one-directional version of truth. So 
you know, if we don't, you can then say, well, if workers don't do anything about this, what then? Well, then I would literally say in very few years, the power of the collective group of workers would disappear. Well, the challenge is very significant, isn't it? Because it's not just the, the collection of data, the kind of harvesting of, of, of data on an ever wider and more sophisticated comprehensive basis. It's then the trade in the data as well. You know, if, if you think about old supply chain economics or, or politics, you are tracking data you know, across country borders, across continental borders, across, across, across oceans, up into the cloud, if you want to take it into that, that dimension as well. And to be able to get hold of it and nail it yeah, and neutralize the damage it can do. It, it is a, it's, I was going to say it's a Herculean task, but that's, not, but it just requires diligence and focus and capacity, as you say. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think we have to understand this because a lot of people I talk to, they say, well, you know, I've done nothing wrong. So I don't care if they take my data and all of this. And I usually say to those people, do you know what? This is not just about you. The thing is that this data is collected. It gets, you know, inferred with other pieces of data. And then they find out, well, what is an ideal worker? Well, the ones who are not ideal, they're from that postcode or that gender, that education and that age, you know, and then Lord help the young person who then comes in and wants a job if they belong to that group that the algorithm has said is less productive. So we have to understand that everything we do right now is being statistically sort of churned into this probability analysis. So it's not just about you as an individual. It's about us and, and everybody around us and future generations. That's one thing. The second thing that's really important about why unions should engage in this is that yes, it's very complex. Once a piece of data is out there, it gets reproduced, rebundled, structured, sold, and it gets, you know, moved around the world. And that's why we need these very strong rights, the right to know what's happening to our data, the right to know who's it being sold to, and so forth. But ultimately, and here I want to echo Shusana Suboff, the, the acclaimed author of the big book called In the Age of uh, Surveillance Capitalism, she calls for the banning of trading in human futures, as she calls it. So the trading in all of these profiles and probability analysis. And I echo her totally. This should be the ultimate union aim. We are not, as people, we're not a commodity. You know, if you remember, the ILO in 1944 signed their Declaration of Philadelphia, where they said labor is not a commodity. Well, do you know what? We are right now becoming recommodified in all of these data points. So we must ban the trading in human futures and unions must fight for much stronger data rights. I get that in absolutely entirely. And I think you're so right to pull it back to the ILO convention. But what appeals to me partly about that idea is not just its simplicity, but the fact it can apply to everyone wherever you are on the planet. And therefore, in terms of a global rallying call, it has quite, quite some traction. What are the prospects, do you think, of global trade union organisations being able to collaborate and meet the challenge in that way? It would be excellent if the global union sat down and said, right, we need a strong uniform voice on this, uniform demands, 
And, and you know, the, can they do it? Yes, it's a question of will. Should they do it? Yes, they should do it right now. They should start working on this. But they should also hold the ILO accountable to their own declaration. You know, I would love for the ILO, a new, there should be a new convention on workers' data rights or on this banning of trade in human futures. We need a global solution. Digitalization knows no boundaries. You know, the only boundaries you can say that it knows is for the roughly 48% of the world's population who don't have access to the internet. But believe you me, the private companies are like hawks waiting for the opportunity to go in and invest to get the data. So it's now, the moment is now for the global unions to have a very strong voice on this, uniform demands across the world, and for the ILO to step up and put a new convention in place on data rights. If we take it from a global level, back down to a, to a local level. In your article on workers' rights and negotiating and co-governing digital systems at work, which, by the way, listeners, you can find a link to on the companion blog to this podcast, you you argued and envisaged structures that would enable, at a local level, greater control to be exercised on digital property, as it were. What do those structures look like, do you think? So beyond having greater rights. So, of course, if workers have rights to something, management must have some duties to be transparent and accountable to how they use data from what sources and so on. So if we establish those and we establish what I call the co-governance of algorithmic systems. Now, this sounds a little bit, uh, but for example, let's take the automated hiring tool or an automated scheduling tool. Where should the home workers, the home care workers, where, which clients should they go to when? Or the salespeople, what route should they take and so on? Now, for all of these things, we should be asking and we should be party to, we being the workers, should be party to, before this system is put in place, an impact assessment, a risk assessment, a knowledge of where we sit with management and say, well, where was this system designed? Is it appropriate in, you know, a Devon context or is it appropriate in Manchester? Are there things that need adjusting? What bias and discrimination can there be in this due to the data sets that it has been trained on? What is its intended purpose? Okay, so we evaluate that, we log it, we find out, okay, we are prepared to take the risk of this discrimination because it's for the greater purpose, whatever. We then run the system, we hire somebody or we let it schedule the routes. And then we need to, after it's been used, to assess it. What outcomes did it have? Were they intended? Was there any unintended consequences or outcomes of using this tool? If so, were they discriminative? For example, you know, Amazon had to remove their own automated hiring system because it had been trained on the hiring that was before and then it only hired men. Now, of course, that doesn't work. So they had to remove that and they're probably adjusting it. So we, you know, we should be party to that. Was it fair? If so, to whom? What trade-offs are we are necessary to make to use this tool? Now, you can say, okay, this sounds like something that's going to take time. Yes, it, it will take time. But my, my whole point is we have to hurry up slowly here. Whilst these tools can actually remove the discrimination and bias of a manager, 
They can, you know, make it more fair. They don't necessarily do so, you know, by themselves. We have to govern them and workers have to be party to that. So in every single workplace, we should be party to this governance of these tools, the adjustment of them, the rejection of them. If it turns out they're crap. Seen through one lens, actually, this is all very easy and very natural to trade union negotiators because that exactly. process of, e- of engaging with the employer, finding out what's proposed, yeah. understanding the parameters, yeah. rolling out on a trial basis, assessing the results, deciding then whether it's going to be retained, modified or, or rejected. That's a standard negotiating process that, that yeah. all of us, are, all of us yeah. are used to. The gap or the challenge is making sure we understand what we're dealing with. That's, that's the challenge. Um, I think, you know, I think, Simon, on that, which is totally right, what, where the capacity building needs to take place in the union movement is we need to know what questions to ask. You know, the unions don't need to have all the answers, but they need to know what should they be asking of the system and of management. So it's it's very much a list of questions that's needed. So I suppose if there are any trade union educators who are out there, and I know you could argue we're all educators, but those involved in trade union, trade union education, here is a gap that is begging to be filled in yeah. trade union curriculum, irrespective of, of industrial sector, irrespective of the size of, size of union, irrespective of, 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 of location. So that's a practical thing that can be done to, to start bridging the gap straight away, oh. I would guess. Yes, and you know, um, I, I can look forward to being involved in several such projects uh, on a global scale next year. But yes, the more the merrier. We need far more unions who are open to this, and we need far more people who are willing to offer the training. And again, in a unified way, right? So I'm looking again at the ILO and the global unions. So a, a couple of a couple of things then in terms of signposting, useful signposting for for, for listeners. If they want to find out more about all this sort of stuff, where where should they look? And if they want to get involved in this this task, this this movement, what's the best way for them to do so? So, you know, have a look at my website, the whynotlab.com has some articles on there, the podcast, some speeches. So that's one way to start. If you're on Twitter, great source of information, start following the hashtag digitalization or AI or algorithmic systems. You know, it might seem sort of like crazy in the beginning, but you get very quickly into it. I would talk to your unions and say, hey, what are you doing about this? You know, could we do some more? Go to the TUC in the UK, for example. They've got some great work going on, some great people there. So, you know, it's not an easy thing. You have to get into this whole field. But but the best way to do it is being curious, is for union to invite some of the te- technological experts, the whiz kids out there, the developers, invite them to some of your sessions to discuss what's on the horizon, what new technologies are being developed that's going to change how we work. How can, you know, both we share with you our workers' thoughts on this, but you can share with us what is technically possible. And believe you me, if this ever happens, you, you'll feel like new areas of your brain are opened because there's <laughs> things we can't even imagine are possible are actually possible. 
Christina, thank you so much for sharing your insights and, uh, and thoughts, especially as I can see you're, you're suffering with the, the last lingering elements of a, of a nasty cold. Yeah, well, my pleasure. I hope it doesn't sound too, uh, too coldy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure it won't. Sure it won't. Thanks very much. Thanks, Simon. Thank you. Well, wow. Uh, I think now you'll know why Christina is so highly regarded around the world in terms of her clarity of thought, her insight and her knowledge about the interaction between work, workers and digital data uh, her website the why not lab is why not lab.com all the links to the authors and papers that christina mentioned during our discussion you can find those signposted on the blog post that accompanies this podcast you can find that on the makes you think.com website but fundamentally uh, you know is our glass half full or half empty on this and we better believe it's half full we better believe we do have the ability to increased capacity about awareness of data about how we can implement and enforce a strategy of pluralism and diversity in the input of designing reviewing rolling out assessing the the importance and relevance of these new algorithms and it's right to try and move the question of a ban on the trade in human futures as christina described it into the mainstream and to have it as part of our negotiating agenda part of a political uh, agenda as well because the alternative the glass half empty view is we're too busy firefighting we can't see above the horizon we don't recognize the importance and we have algorithms that are traded across national boundaries that are inaccessible. We can't influence them. There are notions of the perfect worker. And in the algorithm that determines what the perfect worker is, you can bet your life it will be that any involvement in collective voice or trade unions won't be a tick in the box. Scary stuff. But the future is kind of in our hands, isn't it? The future is in our hands in terms of making sure that we get a good outcome from this rather than a bad outcome. And if you want to, if you want to read across to the fact that these ideas are not particularly new, just pick up a book called Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Well, that's just about it for this episode. I don't want to leave you feeling gloomy and depressed and worried about the future. So let me leave you with two particular thoughts. The first is that if you go to laborradionetwork.org, that's Labour without the U because they're based in the, in the States. You will find a portal to over 70 trade union related podcasts of which Union Jews is one. It shows the breadth and the depth, uh, the intelligence, the commitment of the Labour movement. And we can take confidence from that, that we're certainly not alone. That's the first thing. Second thing is to say that next week on Union Jews, all being well, I will be welcoming Terry Pullinger, who is the Deputy General Secretary for the Communication Workers Union, looking after 100,000 plus members in the postal sector. And if you want a case study about how you leverage your industrial strength to get the best deal possible for your members, you're going to be listening to the right guy. That's in the next episode of Union Jews. It just leaves me to say thank you. Thank you to Christina. Thank you to you for listening. It's been a pleasure to have your company over this last half hour or so. If you like what you've heard, if you don't like what you've heard, if you want to hear more of the same, if you want to hear something different, let us know. Join the conversation. You can email us at unionjews at makesyouthink.com. You can tweet us at Jews Union. And please do rate us on the podcasting platform of your choice. It really does make a difference. Wherever you are, 
whatever you're doing, whatever tier you're in or may be in, please stay safe, look after each other, and I'll see you around. The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.